The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Well, why don't we pray? I warned you this morning, uh, it's 11 o'clock, 8, 9, 10, yeah, 11 o'clock. See, I can't even do math right now. Um, so I'm going to put it on autopilot and just kind of talk, and you can erase whatever I say that isn't biblical, Okay. Because I'm kind of feeling a bit delirious right now. Uh, why don't we pray? <clears throat> and uh, you have in your notes there the title of this is Worship and Sanctification. Really the subtitle is uh, How Do You Deal with Stubborn Desires Through Superior Worship? And that's what I'm going to be emphasizing is how in the world do we deal with uh, the stubborn desires of our inner person and my thesis is going to be that you push out inferior loves by a superior love. And that we need to teach people how to have superior loves in their life to get rid of the inferior loves in their life. But uh, let me pray, and then I'll tell you more about that. Lord God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being here with brothers and sisters in Christ all day. <clears throat> Worshiping you, hearing of your work in lives, and we now commit this time to you as we finish the day. Uh, may the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Uh, Father, we know that there are many people that struggle with incessant, stubborn desires, uh, deeply rooted sin, habitual sin that just does not seemingly want to give up. I pray you would help us to grow in wisdom as disciplers to help people overcome these incessant desires by finding a superior and a more deeply satisfying love in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have in your notes there, a, under the introduction, it says, Dealing with Stubborn Desires, Kelly's Story. Uh, do you have that in your notes? Well, I, I decided since it's so late, uh, I'm not going to tell you Kelly, Kelly's story. I'm actually going to tell you a funny story because Kelly's story is not funny at all. But I figured at this time of the night you need a funny story. And the purpose of this story is to just demonstrate how love makes you do crazy things, right? Uh, love has a lot of power to it. Now think, through, uh, think this through with me for a moment. Love... Love has a lot of power, and it'll make you do just things you never thought you would do. And here's an illustration of that. I got engaged on December 21st. On December 22nd, my wife flew home to Chicago from where I was, and we were going to be apart for our whole Christmas break during college. Well, I was moping around the house, and my father came into my bedroom, and he said, <clears throat> Son, you're driving me crazy. And he threw money down on the bed, and he said, you need to go visit her. So I threw things, this is in the evening, I threw things into a bag and jumped into the car and started driving 700 miles to Chicago. Totally unplanned trip. So there's your first illustration of love doing crazy things. Uh, I got very, very tired. I was just driving all by myself. I'm driving, driving, driving. It was about a 12-hour drive. At one point, I was driving across one of the uh, turnpikes, so I was going from Maryland, 
Pennsylvania Turnpike, Ohio Turnpike, Indiana Turnpike to Chicago, and I was driving across one of those turnpikes, the Ohio Turnpike or the Indiana Turnpike, and I remember the taillights of a car in front of me. And the next thing I remember is the, te- the headlights of that same car behind me. So I had passed that car asleep, because <laughs> I don't remember passing that car. And then I finally got to Chicago and was wonderfully reunited with my new fiancé. Love has power to make us do uh, crazy things. Well, as we uh, think about this theme, one of the, the things that I see Scripture emphasizing is it's warning us about false loves, and it encourages us to true loves. The gospel makes it possible for our hearts, which have this bent because of Genesis 3 toward false loves and unholy affections, the gospel makes it possible so that we can have new loves and superior affections. And that's the direction I want to go in this, with this seminar, is to talk about, real quickly, the tendencies of the heart toward false loves, false hopes, false trusts, but then really spend time developing the theme of true love, true hope, true faith, and how those things can push out the false loves, false hopes of the heart. When you, uh, you don't have to do counseling long and you, you run into people that have deeply rooted desires, uh, desires for things like gambling, and they have made commitment after commitment to stop this, or pornography, and they are determined this time it's going to stop. I am getting rid of this desire. And then what happens? They give in to the same desire. Or uh, they're captivated by alcohol. And they just keep giving in to the temptation. There's deep compulsions and desires in the inner person. Um, You hear people talk about these things, and they might even use words like, I'm a lord by this, that the the sins that they're attracted to, that they just have deep allurements in their soul. What I would like you to think about is how can we teach people to have a deeper allurement for the Lord so that they're so allured by our Lord that they're not as allured by the affections of the inner person that instead of their compulsions being toward pornography or compulsions being toward gambling, that they are so compelled by their relationship with the Lord that that overcomes the inferior desires of the inner person. Uh, The basic premise, again, is superior loves push out inferior loves. So, or another way of saying it is, superior worship pushes out inferior worship. 
uh, instead of trying to teach people to deal with these stubborn, deeply rooted temptations by just what I would call moralistic uh, stopgaps, like put a filter on your computer, uh, all you have to do for a while, after a while, you, you realize as you're telling people, put a filter on your computer, and you're not hearing, um, you're not hearing, don't put a filter on your computer. What you are hearing is that's not enough. All you have to do is deal with people that are dealing with stubborn, deeply rooted temptations and desires. You just deal with them for a little while and you'll realize they could have a, a filter on all three computers in their house, but they're going to find another computer. <laughs> uh, they'll find some way to overcome that because those desires are just deeply entrenched, entrenched and they find it alluring and they find it uh, compelling and so they're going to find some way to fulfill that desire. And I believe that the long-term success is going to come through teaching them superior worship to overcome the inferior worship of their inner person. So let's look at this theme, first of all, of, of worship, and that the basic nature of humans, you just heard Steve talk about this a little bit, the basic nature of humans is to be a worshiper. Now, I'd like to brainstorm with you, so this isn't all lecture, and so I can take a little nap while you're talking. Um, <laughs> uh, I'd like to brainstorm with you worship words and just demonstrate how, how much these worship words have to do with counseling. So brainstorm with me when... And another way of asking the same question would be, what are we commanded to do in Scripture in relationship with the Lord? What are we commanded to do in Scripture in relationship to the Lord? So give me some worship words. Praise Him. What else are we told to do? Pray. Give thanks to Him. Trust Him. Very good. What else? Obey. I think I heard another one. Adore him. So, and I've picked out three words, faith, hope, and love. I find it interesting that Paul makes those his trilogy, faith, hope, and love. But this basic premise that superior worship pushes out inferior worship, it's not just faith as a worship word, or hope as a worship word, or love as a worship word, you could actually take any of these worship words that we're talking about and see how humans do this in a false way. We praise the wrong things. We adore the wrong things. And Scripture warns us about false hopes, false loves, false faith, false adoring, and urges us toward true adoring of what we were truly created for, which is to the creator of the universe what would be some other worship words i counted uh, i think one time i made a list of 52 things i'm commanded to do in relationship to the lord so we've only, we're only just beginning here honor the lord very good exalt the lord very good serve the lord bow down to the lord you can take any, any one of these words again, and you can see how humans, because of our Genesis 3 bent, we do this in the wrong direction. 
And what does the gospel do? The gospel then, instead of me bowing down, serving, putting hope in, faith in, praising, any other word, revering, any other, any worship word that you can think of, because of Genesis 3, I have this bent this direction toward these false loves, false hopes, false adoring of my inner person, that the gospel then reorients me so that through progressive sanctification, I am bending, 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 and I am becoming a worshiper of the true and living God. It's just another way of saying, I'm growing in my love of the Lord, I'm growing in my hope in the Lord, I'm growing in my faith in the Lord, instead of hoping in alcohol to be my Savior, instead of putting my hope in the false escape of pornography to deal with the pressures of life, I'm teaching my soul and I'm teaching my counselees to put their love, their hope, their faith in the true and living God. Uh, Let's look at a couple of verses here to orient ourselves to this theme. And I can't spend a lot of time on this, and I'm kind of taking as an assumption that you've heard this type of teaching before about the heart and the idolatrous tendency of the inner person. So I'm taking that kind of as a premise to get into my real premise, which is the second point of the outline. But in case this is a new type of thinking to you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And let's read what our Lord says about this. So this is the first point of false worship as an indicator of what's wrong. Matthew chapter 12. And I really love the parallel that the Lord makes here. Verse 33 says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? And then the famous statement, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Now here's the part I really love. Look at the parallel that he makes in verse 35. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. What's the word in verse 35 that's a synonym for the word heart in verse 34? Treasure. Very good. So the Lord is paralleling our heart with what we treasure. Do you get what he's saying? Your heart is your value system. Well, what do we do in our value system? We hope in things. We trust in things. And I believe it's very easy to point out, get a little bit technical with you here, late at night, sorry about that, but look, thinking about a biblical anthropology, when you're trying to construct what does the Bible believe is the basic nature of humans, part of the basic nature of humans is that we're made to be worshipers. Humans, your counselee, can't help but hope in things. Your, your counselee can't help but trust in things. Your counselee can't help but love things. We're just made that way as humans. But because of Genesis 3, my value system on the inside is really messed up. And I put my faith, my hope, my trust in the wrong things. So even for a follower of Christ, because of progressive sanctification, I'm trying to teach them a different value system. Superior love, superior faith, superior hope. Let's look at a couple of warnings. Scripture warns us regularly about false hopes, 
false love, false trust, etc. Look at Psalm 33, if you would. So I have a couple places for you to write references down there under point B. Psalm 33 will be the first one. There are so many places in Scripture that Scripture warns us about false hopes, false escapes, false things that we're trusting in. Psalm 33 is a good example. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven. So here's Almighty God of the universe. He's looking down on us. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, so he understands our inner person. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. So God knows human nature. Look what he sees. The king is not saved by a mighty army. Do kings have a tendency to think that their army is going to save them? So the king's not saved by a mighty army. A warrior's not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. But what is the Lord looking for? So the Lord's looking out. He sees that humans have this tendency. Kings have a tendency to think their army's going to save them. The bigger principle biblically would be humans have this tendency to think all kinds of stuff will save us. We put our hope in all kinds of things. But verse 18, what is the Lord looking for? The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. And instead of hoping in their strength, their own strength, they hope in His loving kindness. Superior hopes push out inferior hopes. I want to help my counselee understand that this deep, these deeply rooted desires are about the loves of their heart. It's not just a bad habit that they have. That's not good biblical anthropology. Good biblical anthropology would teach me this is about the hope, the faith, the trust of this person's heart. They're looking for this thing to be a deliverer in their life in some way. It's a way to escape. It's a way to deal with the pressures of life rather than learning how to, I need to go to the Lord. The Lord is to be my rock, my refuge, my fortress. Let's look at a New Testament example. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'll give you some references just for the sake of time so I don't get bogged down on this first point because I really would like to move past it pretty quickly. I'll give you some other references where Scripture contrasts false loves with true love or false hopes with uh, true hope. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Very blunt statement, and I read it and I go, wow, this is the United States of America right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 2, I'll, I'll actually read 1 to 4. Realize this in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Now don't miss the next phrase. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
How do you deal with pleasure loving? Teach a superior love of God. Uh, superior loves, my basic premise again, superior loves push out inferior loves. So for the person who's struggling with alcohol, it's not just about accountability. Do they need accountability? Absolutely. Do they need someone to come and get rid of the alcohol out of their house? Absolutely. That's all part of a well-rounded counseling plan. But for long-term growth and long-term victory in this person's life, they've got to rep uh, understand what that alcohol represents in their life. This is a false love. This is a false hope. And for long-term victory, they're going to have to learn superior love of the Lord and a superior hope in the Lord. Uh, here's some other references that contrast or warn about false loves and true loves. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 52, verse 7. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Since we're so close to that one, why don't we take a peek at it? 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. The other ones, again, were Psalm 118, 8 and 9, Psalm 52, 7. And there are a lot of other places that warn about false hopes and where our hope truly should be. Why does Scripture use these terms like hope, faith, etc., love? It's because our basic nature is to be a worshiper. Those are all worship words, and we as humans are made to be worshipers. Humans worship when they don't even realize they're worshiping. Um, they put their hopes, we put our hopes in things, and we're worshiping, and it's just part of our basic nature. 1 Timothy 6.17. Very clear. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But here's the contrast. But instead, on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Couldn't you... Supply in there, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So if I have a materialist, you're counseling someone who's just consumed by buying things, materialism, they're putting their hope in materialism, what do I need to teach them how to do? Put their hope in the true and living God. It's not just let me take your credit card and I'm going to hold you accountable to try to keep you from spending and running up your credit card bill. No, superior hope in the Lord pushes out the inferior hope of thinking that buying things will satisfy my soul. Now, let's dive into this in an even more focused way. And if you want to do some reading on this, I came across a sermon back in the from the 1700s by a famous Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. And he kind of... Um, approaches the same subject. It's not quite the, the same, but it's the, uh, basically the same idea. And the title of his sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I'll warn you, you'll have to read it two or three times. Read it slow, but it is worth the effort because it's like a gold mine of understanding human nature. He was a Scottish pastor who understood the affections of what's going on on the inside, and he was trying to teach his congregation to have superior 
affections for the Lord and how superior affections push out inferior affections. Now let's give our brains a little bit of a break here and I'll tell you another story and then we'll dig into this principle and I'm, I'm picking on, I'm, I've picked out three words, faith, hope, and love since that's Paul's trilogy. All worship words and I want to show you, we'll probably spend the most time on the first one since I think that's one of the most strategic, is uh, love. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time on that one and then we'll spend a little bit of time on faith and trust to see how superior love pushes out inferior love, superior faith pushes out the inferior faith of my inner person and superior hope in the Lord can push out the things that my heart has a tendency to hope in. Here's my story. Uh, my dad, who's now with the Lord, uh, was a World War II veteran and he fought under Patton in the uh, 3rd Army, 4th Armored Division, 10th Armored Infantry Battalion, and he was a machine gunner on the deterrent machine gunner on a Sherman tank. So I grew up hearing stories of Sherman tanks taking on big, bad Panzer tanks. And one of the things my dad talked about regularly was how the Panzer tank was far superior to our little Sherman tank. And that one Sherman tank firing at a Panzer tank, that it was almost like shooting a BB at a tank. And that we had to develop a strategy for taking out a Panzer tank. Well, doesn't that sound like our inner person? My inner person with its desires, its compulsions, I can be, I mean, humans, we can be allured by sin. Uh, it leads us astray. We find it attractive. Your counselees find it attractive. It's almost like, okay, put a filter on your computer. That's like shooting a panzer tank with a BB gun. Now, how do we take out the panzer tank? Well, my dad would say one Sherman tank could not take out one panzer tank. So a number of Sherman tanks would gang up on a panzer tank, and one of the first things they tried to do was a well-placed shot to knock the tracks off the panzer tank. And then the Sherman tanks knew one of the vulnerable spots was right at the base of the turret of a panzer tank. And so they would just keep shooting at that area or on the panzer tank until one of their shots finally penetrated right at the base of the turret of the panzer tank once they had put it out of commission. You had to be strategic. Well, our flesh is the same way. We've got to be strategic with our flesh. How do you defeat these stubborn, deeply rooted, alluring desires of the inner person? Uh, I believe one of the most powerful weapons the Lord has given us is love. Superior love pushes out inferior love. So let's look at this principle in Scripture. And <clears throat> I have a number of references. I'm going to give you a definition of love. And while I'm doing that, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Did you know, and when I realized this, I... I just puzzled over this for a, quite a while. Uh, did you know that love one another is the most repeated command of the New Testament? It is, by my count, very clearly stated, and you could add a few more to this depending on what you 
count in this list, but love one another is 22 times in the New Testament. Now, that leads me to ask a question. Why does God emphasize love one another so much? Is it just because God's a nice guy and he wants us to be nice people because he's a nice, you know, he's nice? Or is there a strategy to God emphasizing love so much? Another way that it's said is at Matthew chapter 22, and we have the two great commandments. Matthew 22, I won't read the whole passage, but let's begin with verse 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So, two great commandments. What are they? Love God, love others. Then he says this, verse 39. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he goes on to say this. Very fascinating statement, powerful statement. On these two commandments hang or depend the whole law and the prophets. Do you realize what the Lord is saying there? He's saying you can understand, that's his way of saying, the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets is his way of saying the Old Testament. On these two commandments hinge the whole Old Testament. Love God and love others. Uh, It doesn't take long uh, when you're studying things like the Ten Commandments and you realize what are the Ten Commandments divided down into. Well, the first four commandments are about loving God. The last six commandments are about loving others. Um, Love God, love others. Let's build on this theme a little bit and then I'll go back and give you a, a definition of love. Romans chapter 13. Why is it that God emphasizes love one another so much? Again, is it because God's just nice and He wants us to be nice? Or is there a strategy behind this? I believe there's a strategy, and by the way, if you're a church leader, I think you would be a very wise church leader if you were teaching your congregation to love one another. And here's why. Look at Romans 13. Paul writes this, Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Here's the principle. Love leads to holiness. Love leads to holiness. When you love others, you love the Lord, you love others, you die to self. So, Paul goes on to write this. For this, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this statement, Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Do we want to help people learn how to be holy before the Lord? Well, it's not through moralism. It's through love. It's through loving God and loving others. Uh, This word for love, many times in the New Testament, the word for love, as you know, is the word agape. And agape always has with it an object of desire. Uh, Isn't that what's going on with, with temptation? There's some type of object of desire, whether it's a bottle or it's pornography or it's money 
there is some object of desire. How do we help people deal with these false objects of desire? It's not just by suppressing the false object of desire. It's by increasing the value of the better object of desire. Think of the famous hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I'm eating potato chips. I'm eating potato chips. I'm eating potato chips. And then someone offers me a perfectly cooked filet mignon. Do I want to keep eating potato chips? (laughs) I'd be silly if I'd want to keep eating potato chips. I want to help people taste and see that the Lord is good. Develop a superior love and affection for the Lord and make instead of stop it, stop it, stop it, instead become, become, become. Pursue the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what happens? They don't want, you don't want to break these commandments. I love my wife. Why would I want to commit adultery? I love my neighbor. Obviously, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder my neighbor. So, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law, or just another way of saying it is, love leads to holiness. So, we are wise church leaders if we emphasize in our churches, love one another. Because by its very nature, love means I'm dying to self, and I'm putting God and others first. Now, I want you to brainstorm with me. I have point four there in the notes. Using love to battle sexual temptation. If people catch on to this, will they go, okay, how do I grow in love for the Lord? Well, how do you grow in love for anything? Brainstorm with me, and then I want to give you some ideas. So this man or this person is allured by whatever the sexual temptation is. And if we take this as a basic premise... Superior loves push out inferior loves. So I've got to teach the person, this man, to love superior things. Love the Lord. How do you teach someone? How does growing in love for the Lord happen? Let's talk about that for a moment. Give me some ideas. How do we, how do we teach people to love the Lord more? How does love grow? How does love happen? So spending time. How can you not love? So uh, what was said just for the sake of the recording is help people understand the gospel. And what? And don't let me add to what you're saying here, so correct me if this wasn't the direction you were going, but how can you not love a person when you think of the amazing grace we've been given, amazing mercy, and uh, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance? The more I understand grace and mercy, the more my inner person, if I am truly regenerated, my inner person responds to the Lord. Grace, why would I want to sin against this God? Here's another illustration that I think of from the Old Testament. Remember when Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife. And you remember the statement that he said? How could I do this sin against my God? I've, thought, I've just pondered that many, many times. 
He loved his Lord. How could I do this sin against my, my God? A superior affection for his God pushed out the inferior temptation, even though I'm sure that that was tempting. How else do you grow in love? How do we teach people to grow in love for the Lord? So, isn't it easy? What was for, again for the recording? Meditate on His mercies. Meditate on on what He's done. Uh, isn't it easy to to take the attributes of God and study theology and just make it a mere academic subject without then taking it the next step, which is my heart responding in love to this God who is the almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe. We're designed by God not just to know these attributes about Him. We're designed to know the attributes and then turn it into worship of Him. That's when the inner person starts to respond in love to the Lord is when we take our theology and actually out of our inner person, respond in love to the God who is omniscient, omnipotent, and all those other wonderful attributes that, that we study. Uh, even more basically, think with me for a moment, because we're thinking about loving God, loving others. What happens when someone falls in love? Just think of human relationships for a moment. What is happening there. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Just talk to me about that a little bit because I think you can take the same principles and apply them to your relationship with the Lord. That's where I'm going with this. But what happens on a human level when people fall in love? How does that happen? Why does it happen? Okay, so you're, there's something about the person that captivates you and you're thinking about them. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this I'm just attracted to this person. I want to hang around this person. I want to be in relationship with this person. What else? Yes. Good. So you enjoy their companionship. Can you take those same principles to teach counselees or even teach yourself? Maybe you find your heart cold here this evening toward the Lord. Well, what do you do? Start meditating on his attributes. Uh, I think about my wife, and I think about the things that attract me to her, and I start feeling stuff on the inside. Believe me, I'm missing her right now. I get to see her tomorrow night. I like my wife. I like thinking about my wife. How do you grow in love for the Lord? Think about who He is. Think about His attributes. Think about, I like to think about creation, and if creation is a reflection of the Creator, just like a painting is a reflection of the artist, our God must be pretty awesome. <laughs> if this creation is just a reflection, and this is the fallen picture of the creation, just think what our God must be like if He is the original and He's the one that created all of this. Reflecting on creation and how wonderful my God must be. All of those types of things help me grow in love why do I need to do that? Because my heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
I have this basic tendency as a human to hope in the wrong things, to love the wrong things, to put my faith in the wrong things. So my inner person needs to be retrained with superior loves, for superior faith, superior hope. Let's go on to the next one. So that was love. <clears throat> Remember again, I hope you think this through, that if I were to summarize that whole point down into one thing to remember, remember that love one another, one another is the most repeated command of the New Testament. And let your brain puzzle over that. Why does God keep commanding love one another over and over and over? It's not just because God is nice and wants us to be nice. There is a strategy behind it. Let's go on to point B. A lifestyle of trust or faith leads to sanctification. So just as a lifestyle of loving God and others leads to sanctification, a lifestyle of trust and faith in God leads to sanctification. I'm going to, <clears throat> I don't have a slide or anything for this, but if you want to get the exact wording down, you can go back to the notes from this morning. I want to remind you of the definition of faith, or trust from Jerry Bridges that I gave you in the first session this morning. Jerry Bridges said this, Trust is not a passive state of mind, but it's a vigorous act of the soul, whereby we choose to believe the of God and then cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. The longer I've lived the Christian, the longer I live the Christian life, the more I realize how strategic the term faith is in the New Testament. That much of the way we describe the Christian life is it's a life of active faith. We are saved by grace through faith, and then guess what? We live by grace through faith. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. <clears throat> And I'm going to give you an illustration that I found is powerful with, <clears throat> with college students. Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> what does Paul say? Maybe for some of you this is your life verse. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now, does that mean that what Paul is, is he saying here when he says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Does he mean by that, I am living my life believing the message of the gospel and that it's going to get me to heaven someday? Or does he mean that plus I am living every day choosing to believe what God says is true rather than what my flesh is telling me is true. I think it's more that than the first option, that it's just about I believe this message and it's going to get me to heaven someday. Uh, you look at Hebrews chapter 11, <clears throat> and the each one of the people that are talked about in the great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, there were promises that God gave them. And why are they in the hall of fame of faith? Because they chose to believe those promises and 
their lives changed radically because they believed those promises. Now let me show you how practical this is. Turn with me to Hebrews 11, and I'll show you a passage that I use with college students and talk to them about why do you resist sexual temptation? Why do you say to yourself, I am not going to give in to this because I'm going to choose to believe that what God promises is better. It is superior to what my inner person is telling me to give in to right now. Look at Hebrews 11, and I'm going to start with verse 23. <clears throat> this is what uh, John Piper calls living by future grace. And verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden, for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Now think about that for a moment. Moses didn't give in to the passing pleasures of Egypt because there, was a, there were greater riches that he was looking for in the future. <clears throat> How does that apply to sexual temptation? So a guy and a girl are in a relationship, and... There are really strong sexual temptations. And we're trying to teach them why do you resist? <clears throat> why do you resist? <clears throat> sorry for that. These sexual temptations. God promises that if you wait for marriage, that the sexual relationship in marriage is far superior to what you're inner person is telling you you need right now that if you'll resist the temptation now to give in to these sexual temptations that the reward you will reap in your marriage will be so far greater um, living by faith in the promises of god um, what is sin when i think about the unholy areas of my life isn't part of giving in to sin in our lives that I, I'm choosing not to believe what God's Word says is true. God says that if I resist temptation, it's far better for my soul. I'll be in a healthier state in my relationship with Him. But my flesh says, no, you need to give in to this and you need to give in to it now. What would faith say? Faith says, I'm going to believe what God says even though my inner person is screaming at me to give in. Uh, faith, superior faith in the Lord, pushes out the inferior faith and trust of the heart. Uh, so I have as my illustration here, using vigorous faith to battle worry, something like worry. And I don't want to repeat a whole lot from the sermon this morning, but a lot of the same principles would apply with with a counselee who's just struggling with anxiety or worry. That definition of trust by Jerry Bridges, it's not just getting them to memorize the definition of trust, 
It's getting them, if they're laying awake at 2 o'clock in the morning, worrying about the future, to get out of bed, read God's Word, have a vigorous prayer time, and then talk to their soul and tell their soul that they really believe the promises of God. And then what's, what starts to happen? The inner person starts to calm down. Not just by reading Scripture, not just by praying, but by, as Jerry Bridges saying, It's a vigorous act of the soul whereby we choose to believe the promises of God. And then the inner person responds. Uh, Let me give you some other passages just to write down for your own study here for the future. We looked at Psalm 28 this morning in the first uh, session. But here's some other ones about faith and how living a life of faith helps us deal with the issues of the soul. Isaiah 26 3 and 4, one of my favorite passages. Psalm 9, verse 10. Psalm 40, verses 3 through 5. That living faith helps me deal with the temptations of my inner person by choosing to believe that God's ways are superior Uh, to what my inner person is promising me. Let's look at the last one now. A lifestyle of proper hope leads to growth. Uh, To start this off, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs 18. And I want to show you again that Scripture contrasts false hopes with true hopes. That's very easy to see. In something like gambling, and someone has just a compulsive desire to gamble, it's easy to see that they're putting their hope in winning the big one. If I'm going to help them overcome this compulsive desire, there has to be a superior hope that they're hoping in. Look at Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Now notice the contrast. What's the rich man doing instead? The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. It's a false hope. How do I help people deal with things like materialism? Get a reality check on what this really is. It's a false hope. Where is your true hope? Your hope is in the name of the Lord. That's your true strong tower. And the righteous learns how to run to Him to be safe. Um, The theme of hope, and as you know, just hope is talked about many, 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 many places in Scripture. And there are a number of different words that are used for hope in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's basically the idea of what am I putting my confidence in? I want to teach my counselees and continue to teach my own soul that my true confidence is in the Lord, not in all the stuff that the the world promises me that my confidence uh, can be in. Uh, We've already looked at under number two there, it says, watch out for false hopes, 1 Timothy 6, 17, Psalm 33. We've already looked at both of those passages, but let's go to that Romans 15 passage. And think about true hope. One of the basic principles of Scripture is that your hope 
is no more secure than the substance of the object. Let me repeat that again, just so you can be thinking about it, even though it's getting late here tonight. Hope is no more secure than the substance of the object. Um, If I had, let's imagine I had a stool up here, and I wanted to sit on that stool, and I hope that it's going to hold me up. Well, if one of the legs was loose, and I leaned on that stool, it would be a false hope. Scripture warns us about putting our hope in objects that aren't really substantial. So it tells us, don't put your hope in wealth. Don't put your hope, king, in your mighty army. But instead, put your hope in God. Romans 15, verses 4 and 5 to begin with. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Why did God give us the Old Testament? Because you have all of those amazing stories of the object of our hope. Who do we put our hope in? We put our hope in the true and living God who's able to part the Red Sea. And whatever the story is from the Old Testament, this is the object of our hope. And then, Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. If you put your hope in the right place, it starts to uh, impact your emotions. Look at verses 12 and 13. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How do you get this joy and peace? It's by believing. By putting your hope in the right place, by believing, joy and peace comes to my soul that you may abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. It shouldn't surprise us at all that people put their hope in the bottle, and what happens? It's a false hope, so therefore it leads to sadness and destruction. People put their hope in things like pornography. This is an escape to deal with the pressures of life. It leads to pain and anguish in life. People put their hope in, maybe I'll win the big one, and I'll just gamble a little bit of money, and then gamble a little bit more money, and gamble a little bit more money. And what does it lead to? It leads to pain and anguish in life. But what does proper hope lead us to? According to Romans 15, it leads us to joy and peace in believing. And that's that basic contrast in Scripture again. If you invest in these hopes and you invest in these loves, this is where it's going to take you in life. If you invest in these hopes and you invest in these loves, this is where it's going to take you uh, in life. What we're really saying through this whole paradigm that I've been trying to explain, even in the midst of my tiredness, is worship is the goal of sanctification. That we are teaching counselees, I want to teach my counselees how to be a worshiper of the true and living God instead of a worshiper of all the things that my world, our world promises, false hopes, false loves, etc., It makes total sense to me then 
why John warns in 1 John chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of these things are passing away. What's the contrast with it? If you were to ask John, okay, well, John, what's the, what's the opposite of that then? Well, it's not love the world, but love the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, what do we do? What do we teach people to do? I want to teach people to worship. That doesn't just mean on Sunday morning, sing praise songs. That means every day of my life, I'm, I'm waking up and I'm choosing, what am I going to love today? What am I going to put my hope in today? What am I going to put my faith in today? What am I going to rejoice in today? What am I going to be devoted to today? What am I going to bow down to today? What am I going to praise today? Any worship word that the, that the scriptures talk about, my heart as a human has a tendency to go the wrong direction. By the grace of God, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, I have a whole new potential now to trust the right things, love the right things, put my hope in the right things. And with your counselees, I really believe one of the ways we help them uproot these deeply rooted, stubborn desires that are captivating their souls is by helping them see that it's about love, faith, hope, trust, and that if they grow in their love, faith, hope, and trust, delight in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, adoring the Lord, that treasuring the Lord, that those inferior things will start to fade away. Uh, just like the hymn says again, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why don't we close in prayer? <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for giving strength, and I thank you for these precious people who have been here all day and have just been absorbing uh, session after session. I pray now for a good night's rest and that we would come for the last morning uh, just excited for what you're going to do uh, in our lives. Uh, Lord, please continue to give us wisdom uh, insight into human nature so that we can be effective in helping our counselees, our disciplees, deal with the deeply rooted desires of the inner person. And then I would pray, uh, just even more practically, Lord, that our love for you would grow even more. That we would not just know about you, but that we would be in love with you as the creator of the universe, and truly love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.